It's a beautiful day in this neighborhood, a beautiful day for a neighbor. Would you be mine? Could you be mine? It's a neighborly day in this beauty wood, a neighborly day for a beauty. Would you be mine? Could you be mine? I have always wanted to have a neighbor just like you. I've always wanted to live in a neighborhood with you, so let's make the most of this beautiful day. Since we're together, we might as well say, would you be mine? Could you be mine? Won't you be my neighbor? Won't you please? Won't you please? Please won't you be my neighbor? Welcome back to the Blackcast. Here I am once again talking about Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, specifically the documentary uh, Won't You Be My Neighbor by filmmaker Morgan Neville. And I'm joined once again by Gene Beretta, Gene in Philly. Talking on the Blackcast. That's right. That's a, that's a little shareable Texas there. And let's see if we can get some freestyling out of our other guest, Jason Blair. <laughs> oh, freestyling. Okay. Hey, look, there's another episode of Mr. Rogers on right now. I'm up right now. Just listen to the damn show. Uh, anyway, uh, we talked so much in the last episode, and I felt like we didn't make anywhere near enough headway. And there was so much more that I wanted to talk about that uh, I've kept you uh, trapped here in the studio with me uh, until we could get another episode recorded. But... Uh, sort of back to the film, probably the only time we saw him really angry in the film. I'm, look, I'm sure he got angry in his life, but you see him angry in the film and he's literally talking to the adults who misled their children and didn't make it clear to them that they would hurt themselves if they tried to fly. And that seems to have been an impetus for him to really get the show back on the air was like, oh, okay, so I thought that I covered, you know, whatever they said, 500 topics, but apparently it wasn't enough. And I think they did like 400 more shows. I think there's 900 shows. That's the number I have in my head. There's about 900. So they went back in, and it's funny because they talk about doing the week of superhero shows. And if there is an episode that I remember more than any other of this show, it's the episode where he goes to visit Lou Ferrigno on the set of The Incredible Hulk. And he just wants Yeah, and he just wants to show you that the, here's, a, here's this nice man, and look, he's going to put on this green makeup. And now he's pretending to be the Hulk so that the Hulk's not scary. Similar to that, there was a clip in the PBS documentary that Jason and I mentioned in the previous episode called It's You I Like. There's a clip of him. He had Margaret Hamilton, who played the Wicked Witch of the West in The Wizard of Oz, on the, the sort of one of the early episodes of the first series of the show, just showing like, yeah, she's just a lady that wears a hat. And, you know, I, I think it's sort of important to let you see that kind of behind the scenes stuff. There was something about that Hulk episode that stuck with me probably because of how much I liked superheroes when I got older. But I also liked, I think that they would sometimes show you some behind the scenes stuff. You know, they would, I think that they would let you see what it looked like when he, you know, had one of the puppets on maybe. Uh, in fact, uh, one of the episodes that was on was uh, he showed how the trolley worked. He opened up the door and basically, um, showed how it would go back and forth and then sort of when it went into the tunnel it didn't really go out to the neighborhood of make-believe it just sort of ended and and explained that and, and it's funny how that stuck with my kids because now whenever they watch daniel tiger that's how they know mr Ro they they say oh that's mr rogers trolley whenever they call trolley they're like oh that mr rogers owns the trolley and and i do remember and maybe uh gene might even know about this um in the documentary on pbs they mentioned about how uh, PBS wanted to do a, a Sesame Street Mr. Rogers crossover and basically that Jim Henson and and uh, Mr. Rogers had a sort of a disagreement on that because they wanted uh, they wanted Big Bird to come and meet Mr. Rogers and Fred said only if uh, Carol Spinney will take the the head off and show everybody that he's you know, just a man under the, the suit. And Jim Henson said, no, absolutely not. No one can ever see Big Bird, you know, take it off. And so that he said, well, then Big Bird can only appear in the neighborhood of make-believe. And then since Mr. Rogers is not in the neighborhood of make-believe, he, he didn't get to be actually on camera with 
Mr. Rogers. He was just in the neighborhood of make believe. Right. And I can definitely agree with both philosophies. You know, like I want you to be able to see what's not real, but then also the Jim Henson school, you know, it's the, it's the Disneyland thing. I don't care if you're going to throw up in the Mickey Mouse hat, you don't take it off. You know, no kid should see Mickey Mouse take his head off. Mr. Rogers did get to meet Big Bird in an episode of Sesame Street. Just the, you know, lest anybody be concerned that they never actually did get to have the big uh, super team up. Uh, It did actually happen. Trust me, there have been cases where in the old Henson show Dinosaurs, where the puppeteers have thrown up in their heads. <laughs> Is, could, I was could, witness. Could that be a story from your brother Bill, who, who was... Well, uh, I was there. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> they would sometimes faint. Those costumes were extremely hot and sweaty. So they, it, it made for um, <laughs> very uncomfortable situations. <laughs> I, 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 don't, I think that... The dinosaur costumes, when you think about it, those would pro- those would be heavier than even like a like a Big Bird costume or whatever because it's that's those were rubber, right, Gene? Yeah. Plus the 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 I forget what the puppeteer's name was who was the wife, um, Fran. He he left um, halfway through. He was replaced because he had neck problems because of that really tall, long, heavy neck on the puppet. It was bad. Well, it, it sounds like it. <laughs> it's dramatic. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I had no idea the connection that it had to Mr. Rogers is this idea, and they talk about it in the movie, of 143. Now, anybody who had a pager like me understands 143 was your little numeric text for I love you. And unfortunately, I did not get a lot of those 143s, but I knew it existed. And so maybe I led my life like wanting it to be a thing. But I I don't know if it was just like from an era of the show, like after my sister wasn't watching it. I didn't know anything about it. But uh, Jason, you had an interesting reaction when you saw them talking about 143 and how it's his weight, right? Yeah, I I didn't know what 143 was either. But then again, I had the Zach Morris car phone in high school. So, nice. Call uh, me, I know. But uh, no, yeah. When he said 143, you asked me what my thoughts were on that, and I said, I said, ah, it just made me angry because I I remember what my waistline looked like when I was 143. I mean, he was so <laughs> proud that his weight every time he said, no matter. No matter what, as a he would go swimming and he would uh, weigh himself every day, and for thirty years it was one four three, like every day. I so couldn't. I, I I was trying to imagine how that could be. It, how do you get I, through Thanksgiving and stuff? So, he yeah. must just know not to measure himself like around the holidays. Yesterday I was in New York. I went to see the David Bowie exhibit, the whole big retrospective of his career, and there was a notebook with his not dimensions, you know, his 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 fitting. Um, what's it called? You know, his they measurements, write down, like your your like for a tailor, like those measurements, yeah, whatever they're called. That, yeah, yeah. He had a twenty-four inch waist. What? How, yeah, <laughs> mine's thirty-four, and I'm pretty thin. <laughs> twenty-four. Uh, I know for a fact that I haven't been one four three in the twenty-first century. It certainly hasn't <laughs> been since the twentieth century. So, uh, but it it's just funny that there's all these little things like that that you just have no idea and. And then I'm like, well, did somebody see that and think like, oh, that makes sense for text? I don't, I don't know the answer to any of that, but uh, I just thought it was, it was like, it was interesting. There's just a lot of emotional things that are fascinating, and then there's just little, little nuances of trivia that I think they're able to pack into the movie. Which, by the way, the my overall criticism of the movie is that it's it's 94 minutes. I was like, man, you could have easily gotten 10, 15 more minutes in there, you know? I I feel I felt like when it was ending, I'm like, why why does it have to end now? Like how about a little bit more? I don't know, did you guys feel that way or did you feel like maybe I maybe I'm just a glutton for punishment or a glutton for enjoyment? Gene, did you feel like it was about the right length? It felt right to me because I felt at that point I've been a little bit on an emotional roller coaster with it. And I thought, okay, well, this is this is good as is. It it was very effective. I think it said all of the big points that Mr. Rogers would have wanted stated. So you know, I guess there might be a DVD with extra stuff down the road. But it felt right to me at the time. Um, felt it was paced right, and everything fell into place in a, in a nice way. I think the length was great. Um, with any documentary, it's always hard to not be hypercritical to say. 
you know, why did they take time to include this when I would really like them to dig down further on something that maybe they only spent a minute or two on. Um, this one was way better than that PBS documentary. I thought that PBS documentary was was interesting, but it just seemed like, like you said, it was a lot of yo-yo ma. Just, okay, we don't need 30 minutes on his one perform two performances that he did on the show. Um, you know, we can maybe do some other things. So like the Westboro Baptist Church, I mean, they spent several minutes on that and, and which is okay, but it's like, why, why give them any publicity at all? And I, I know it's a good counterpoint to, you know, how Fred would, would have handled that. But, um, yeah, I, I thought the length was great and, and I thought they did a really good job at, uh, kind of hitting all the highs and lows, things that made you angry, things that made you happy, things that made you sort of reminisce and feel nostalgic about those times as well. Yeah. And to the point about the PBS show, it, it, it felt shortchanged because of the fact that there was so much musical performance in it. And I guess I just felt like it was going to keep going and then they were going to get past that stuff. And look, there's some amazing things in that PBS documentary. Like the fact that they showed film of a dog giving birth and you're like, what? And they did on, on that show on Mr. Rogers at some point, I don't uh -huh. know when, but it was apparently in Sarah Silverman's childhood because she remembered it. Just those sort of things. There's so many things that you take away from the show, just sort of how, how daring and progressive I'm using the lowercase P for progressive, how progressive it, it was. It wasn't a political party, but it was certainly a progressive show. Yeah. Even though, yeah. Well, no, um, they talked about how he's a registered Republican. So it certainly wasn't a capital P progressive show. Right, right. But you made me think of a really unorthodox moment in the show that made me crack up. Is, And it was all based around the thought of how quiet the show was. Uh, when they set a timer for one minute, he said, do you want to see what a minute feels like? And they just sat there for a minute and let the time pass, which would never happen on any other show. That That's perfect, though, because I noticed that, you know, uh, as far as in the last episode talking about having patience for my kids. It's just so many times in the day I say just a few minutes and we're getting to the point now where they want to take forever eating their dinner. And I'm like, we're going to go upstairs in five minutes. And I realized they don't know what a minute is. And so, uh, when, when oh. that was on the show, I was like, that's a good lesson. Like I need to find that episode and show my kids, this is a minute. So they know. Speaking so. of that, you know, a lot of kids today don't know what a minute looks like because they don't see analog clocks a lot. And that was a lesson we had to do with our son because he had some difficulty with um, time relations, ships and things like that. So we put a bunch of analog clocks in the house. That doesn't, kids don't block out time in their heads the same way anymore because they don't have a visual of what a clock hand looks like going around the circle. Yeah, you can show them sort of that like stopwatch feature on the cell phone, but it's, it's not the same thing. Yeah, when you have the analog clock, it makes a big difference. Complete tangent, um, my wife found having millennial interns on a television show that sometimes they will not be able to get up and be on time because their phone dies overnight. And so huh. then you ask the question, it's like, well, why didn't you set an alarm? And it's like, well, it, it was on my phone. And it's like, well, you know, you should, you should get another one. It's like, what do you mean? Like the idea that you would have another device that would tell you time is something that's right. lost. And so I would imagine, you know, your son being even younger than that, uh, hopefully more responsible, but now he'll know that uh, maybe you have the, you know, have the backup analog clock somewhere in the house, which, you know, I do have an, an alarm clock. So I guess that if the power goes out, I will still be screwed. But, uh, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't have the old bell alarm clock. Like you will, you'll see not like the saved by the bell alarm clock, but you know, Jason, because you mentioned it, I kind of wanted to circle back on, and I, I kind of didn't, I didn't do a good job taking notes during the movie either time because I didn't want to be that jerk with my phone on in, in the movie theater. <laughs> but uh, the friend Wait, of his... Christian, there's a thing that we call pad and paper. Yeah, I know. I forgot now, to... Your, your generation, it might be phones. <laughs> the, the funny thing was, was like... I don't know how to write. I, I meant to bring that for the second viewing and then I didn't have a pen anywhere in the car. And I, I guess what I should have done is I should have asked somebody at the movie theater, but maybe they didn't have one. But anyway, kind of like the old style, like a reporter, like the Matt Drudge hat with the press. <laughs> and just, yeah. Yeah. And I'd be like, cool. how you doing? I need a pen. All right. My name's Scoop. I'm, I got a scoop here. I'm going to cover the movie for you. See? Roll back the film. Roll back the film. I missed that line. <laughs> uh, but to that point, uh, the lawyer friend of Mr. Rogers, uh, who 
looks uh, eerily. Reminded me of Joaquin Phoenix. Yeah, that's what I was gonna say. Is he looked like what? This literally the next thing out of my mouth was he looked like Joaquin Phoenix, but he was. He was like, yeah. But anyway, so he makes the point about across the street from Fred's memorial, there was that group that we do now call the Westboro Baptist Church. And they did burst on the scene in the early 21st century. And everything is so hypersensitive now. It's almost like you shouldn't say what the name of the organization was. But I first heard of them. They were the God Hates Fags people. And Mm -hmm. I think when you call them the Westboro Baptist Church, that at least slightly legitimizes what they're doing. You know what I mean? It's uh, Think what you want about Bill Maher, but he has this line about how he doesn't think we should call it domestic violence. You know, when you call it wife beating, it's really apparent what's happening. You know, it's like when you sort of soft soft sell these things that you shouldn't. So that's who they were. And it, it's, uh, look, anybody who knows anything about the Westboro Baptist Church knows how crazy they are. But yeah. when you call them that, there's something about it. But just this observation that not Joaquin Phoenix, but we might as well call him Joaquin Phoenix. <laughs> the The observation he made was that just how miserable the kids looked, you know, being dragged into their parents' craziness. And, you know, you see that uh, sometimes when you see crowd shots of marches, and I'm talking about marches for liberal progressive causes, and I'm talking about marches for uh, conservative causes too. There's sometimes there are kids that are like, man, they don't don't even know what you got them marching for. Why are they there? And sometimes it's like, well, because I feel like it's important. Sometimes it's like, well, because I uh, can't find a babysitter. And I'm glad that you don't actually see the the faces of the kids. You just sort of see sort of the the sides of the way that they're just looking away from their parents. Um, But all I could think about, and I'm sure that this is why it's in there, is that for... Mr. Rogers, like, he would see that and he's like, I don't care what they're saying about me, these these adults, whatever, they, they can say whatever they want. But he would feel so bad for those children. And I do feel like it was a, a fitting way to go out on, on the movie is just to sort of, I don't know, I guess to look at, at that sort of dynamic. But uh, what, did, what did you think, Gene? I, I would just be repeating what you said. It's, um, well, because I know that so succinctly, because I'm so smart. You just speak for me for the rest of the podcast. All right. You'll be the, you'll be the gene puppet. <laughs> yeah. In a way, it was sad to kind of have that in the last minutes of the film because it leaves you with a sour taste in your mouth. But um, or uh, I but, did walk out of there feeling sad, I think, because they ended with basically 9-11 and with that and, and his whole speech at 9-11 when his wife said, you know, they wanted him to record that um uh, public service announcement on how to deal with that. And, and he said that he, he felt doubt and he was like, you know, is, is all this that I did, is it even worth it? You know, the whole message was getting beyond our differences and sort of bringing people together. And then it just seems like this world keeps getting more divided. And, and he was really questioning that. And, and you look at today and you see how divided we are and you're like, yeah, you know, just, it, it it didn't take. And so do we need more Mr. Rogers? I mean, you'd love to go back to that time and have that message back again, but it it did make you feel a little bit like, you know, maybe this maybe it didn't work, which sort of stinks, you know, that you don't you don't walk out of there thinking, oh now the everything's better and great and he solved the whole generation's problems. Because we're always having more and more problems. But I'm guessing that most of the people walking out of that theater, I guess, will carry that torch in a way. Yeah. And I think it was such a contagious message that at least the people seeing this film will um, do their best to carry that word and set a good example. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, and here we are carving out multiple episodes of very valuable black cast time just because, uh, you know, we all wanted to talk about it so much. And this really grew out of the fact that I was simultaneously having text slash Facebook messenger conversations with both of you about the movie. And I was like, well, these are the guys that I, I should get together with and talk about on the podcast. Also, because you're both fathers, it's it's fun to talk about. I don't know. Not There's a lot of things that, that don't necessarily make me this emotional and it's probably because of the connection to to childhood sort of another negative note towards the end of the film and i don't mean from my enjoyment just sort of something that they cover there's these clips from fox news and you know i'm not using fox news the way that a lot of times when people say fox news they happen to be from fox news uh they were blaming mr rogers for the narcissistic generation because he told everyone they're special to me that misses the point that everybody is special and the distinction is that he didn't let you think you were entitled but you you can still be special and i think that 
if you take anything away from all the lessons on the show about feelings and the way it's okay to feel about things, I think he would have felt terrible about participation trophies and all that sort of stuff because it insulates you from the real world. Uh, I don't know. That That's the way that I see it. I think he's like, no, no, you should still toughen up and, and be a good person, but you can still be special. And I, I want to know what you guys think, but I actually, I found from the uh, Marist College, uh, the circle is the newspaper, but I found the transcript of the speech that Mr. Rogers gave when he spoke at my college in May of 1999. Now, it's probably the same speech he gave at a number of schools. I'm going to assume very few speakers write something uniquely for Marist College in Poughkeepsie, but he talks about the, the song. He's a huge it's, Rick Smith fan. Huge, yeah, I'm sure he was. Uh, he talks about the song, you know, It's You I Like, and this is a direct quote from his his commencement speech. What that ultimately means is that you don't ever have to do anything sensational to be lovable, nothing sensational for people to love you. In fact, the outside things of life, the things that television and newspapers talk about most, are not really important things. When I say it's you I like, I'm talking about the part of you that helps you to wonder and dream, to say thank you, and to feel for others. That's the part of you that will ultimately make the biggest difference in our world. And to me, that's the part that everybody has. Even those little kids in the studio that are dicks, you know? Even they have them, you know? Even people that well, I don't I mean, like. I'm, I'm glad that they let, is it pronounced Junlei Lee, who was um, the talking head, the Asian man who was, I think, head of the Fred Rogers Center? Yes. He, he, they let him make that point that it was all about making the point that everybody has intrinsic value. And it doesn't have anything to do with being entitled. I, I mean, I, I, the sentiment of a generation that feels entitled and they don't have to work hard, I can certainly agree with that. But I don't think it comes from telling you, oh, by the way, you're not garbage. What do you think, Jason? Yeah, I, I think that's right. I think they just – and it's hard to know. I mean, I think it was Brian Kilmeade and Steve Ducey on Fox and Friends they showed there. And, you know, sometimes I think they might have just been saying something to just be – you know, a little, you know, what, what was the, yeah. I mean, what was the context? Yeah. Well, there, to, but, to, to be honest, two of the least special people in the whole world. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. But, but, you know, that, but that is the thing is it's just, uh, there's a difference between special in God's eyes. Cause this, you know, it was a, a Presby, he's a Presbyterian minister. And, and I think that going to church, I understand that, that it's, God does think that you are special. You are a unique and unique individual. You have a relationship with God and he loves you. And I think that's what Fred was saying, but taking the message that I'm special, therefore check out my new YouTube video. It's, you know, what I'm, it's Friday, Friday, yay, yay, or, you know, stuff like that. And, you know, I'm special. That's, that's not the same message. And I think it's just one of those things where you're using the word special interchangeably but with a different meaning and and that was never fred's fred's message and i think anybody who's honest would you know agree to that i think even the people on fox and friends are just you know yeah it made for a good debate and to be fair they also showed that there were editorials that were making the same point so it isn't just these guys on fox and friends you know it it it, they're they're the visuals so they're the easiest one to start with so it, it was definitely a narrative and you know the only thing that makes me sad about that is i believe that that narrative existed in his lifetime. So I I would have liked for him to have, you know, maybe not seen that. And to your point earlier about 9-11 and asking it, what difference is it going to make? I don't know if either of you watched those PSAs that he did around 9-11, but it's incredibly heartfelt. He does seem a little lost. Yes, he wondered if he could do any good, but it's sort of this nice reminder that he makes about how much good we can all do, you know, whether you're Mr. Rogers or you're a parent or just someone in a child's life. And he was basically saying like, you know, I'm done with my show, but I'm, I'm proud of everything that all of you have done. And you know, the parenting I did for the kids, great, but, you know, it's really, it's really on, on you guys. I'm just so proud of all of you who have grown up with us. And I know how tough it is some days to look with hope and confidence on the months and years ahead. But I would like to tell you what I often told you when you were much younger. I like you just the way you are. And what's more, I'm so grateful to you for helping the children in your life to know that you'll do everything you can to keep them safe. 
and to help them express their feelings in ways that will bring healing in many different neighborhoods. It's such a good feeling to know that we're lifelong friends. So I don't know. Have either of you guys seen those, by the way? Or I, I have seen one, and, and, and that, that is a message that I think we need reminded of is I think that you know, doing good, everybody, especially in this day and age, it's about it's about marches, it's about social change and whatever. And and really we're we're focused on that, but we're not focused on this world would be so much better if we were just doing good on a day-to-day basis, raising your kids, doing your job well, things that you you have control over. And I think maybe that's why our society seems so everybody's going nuts and frustrated now because it's all about change on a global level and changing our government and changing, you know, policies. It, it just needs to start at home more. And I don't, I don't, I think that that's a message I think that Fred would, would say is, Hey, all this crazy stuff's going on. I mean, for him, it was the war in Vietnam or wherever the cold war or whatever, but he would say that stuff's going to happen, but you still go out and be the best you can be and you be special in your own life and be a special dad. Although, although he did take on some larger issues like civil yeah. rights issues and things like that. Right. You know, but was, those things are personal. I mean, you know, it, it wasn't him out marching. He just invited officer Clemens to share the, the pool with him. And I, and I know that's a, that's a commentary. Well, that's a huge, it's a personal level. You know, you don't, you don't kill racism by, making everybody else in the world not be racist. You kill racism by all of us one at a time being being kind to people of all races, you know, and so that's in your control, I think. That's- right, and I think that he understood the value in, you know, I'm my show is for kids. Kids are going to see that Mr. Rogers and Officer Clemens are actually, you know, washing their feet in the same pool, and they're going to just be like, well, yeah, that's that's normal. There's there's nothing that's wrong about that. And yeah, I, I can see that in the context of why that was a big deal, uh, just in terms of, you know, the country as a whole. I don't think any of us grew up in places where maybe there were PBS stations that didn't air the episode. I don't actually know that, but uh, I wouldn't be surprised, let's put it that way, if, if you heard about some of, some of the more rural areas out there. Uh, Jason, since we're speaking about Officer Clemens, uh, I wanted you to talk about Something that is his name Francois Clemens. Is that his? Yeah. Because yeah. everybody's everybody's basically their real name, but I, I just wanted to make sure I had his name right. Uh, he talks a little bit about something in the film, and I wanted you to sort of talk about how that was reacted to at the screening you saw. Yeah. So I went uh, here in Indianapolis. It's playing at sort of our art house theater. You know, it's playing RBG and you know those type of things. It's not sort of your general AMC type theater. So uh, when I went in, it was in the evening, and the audience, it was definitely, I had to set through a lot of, uh, like, the the trailers for the movies there, like, it was like a Natalie Portman anti-meat documentary and things like that, so I understood who the, kind of the patrons of this theater were, and so when they got to the point with, um, with Officer Clemens, where, you know, they, they'd just been... Uh, in the pool, he was washing his feet, and and he was wanting wanting to bring the races together, uh, since apparently there were some pools in the south that you know you wouldn't they wouldn't allow blacks to swim in the same pool, um, and then of course they brought out that he was was gay, and and that uh, you know Fred knew about it. This was like 1970, 1971, and and yet was still you know very friendly with him on the show, and you know this was not a time that. I think a show like that, I could see, you know, a lot of other shows might have gotten you let go at that time, uh, but he was still great with them. But then he found out that he was basically frequenting a pretty notorious, I guess, gay bar in in Pittsburgh, and and told him, you know, you can't keep going there if you if you want to stay on the show. There were actually people in my theater. <laughs> it was a, one lady stood up and booed, and another person went. No, like, you know, just like we're visibly upset about it. And uh, I just thought, I don't know what they really kind of expected in 1970 in a kid's show uh, if (laughs) they were going to have a major character on the show come out as openly gay, um, how that would have been received by the American public in 1970. Well, I mean, uh, it, it wouldn't have happened. He wouldn't have been on the show is, is what right. would have happened. And, you know, look, you know, he, he realized rightly that it's much more important for him 
to be, you know, the black representation on the show, to have that be a presence and handle those issues, then to also be like, oh yeah, now also I'm going to deal with, you know, homosexuality. I think that especially in those times, it's just, it's just not something you could do. But the people who walked out of the theater, they sort of missed how that story comes back around, I thought, right, Jason? Yeah, they did. Uh, so I guess Francois Clemens actually got married uh, and then he got divorced and then, you know, later came out as 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 openly gay. But uh, he said that uh, Fred was always, you know, very supportive of him and 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 really even of uh, of gay causes and things like that. You know, later on, I mean, this is probably more in, in the 90s, but, uh, you know, was still would would sing songs to him and say, you know, uh, you know, I love you and 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 you're you're god you know i love you just the way you are and 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 he said you know are you singing that to me and he's like yeah i'm, I'm i've been singing it to you for years i yeah. guess he thought that it was just more for the camera but he said no he really meant it on a personal level as well so yeah, yeah I, I think I, a lot of people jumped the gun on on that moment when he first mentioned that he couldn't go back to the gay bar because if you see it a second time you see that Francois understood completely why Fred was telling him he couldn't go back. The two of them had the same mission, and that was to put a black man in front of a black audience as a great role model. And they, neither one of them wanted to sacrifice the presence of his character on television. Fred wasn't asking him to deny his sexuality. They just knew that on a practical level, he couldn't be seen in a gay bar to cause controversy to ruin everything that the two of them worked so hard at, at putting together and, yeah, and the people that did walk out they were younger i think they just i don't think i don't know people they, they want to apply 2018 standards of morality to you know other times and it just that wasn't the reality in 1970 yeah so, i mean even yeah. though even though it's public television your your sponsors and donors aren't going to underwrite a show where all of a sudden something like that is going on it's you can feel that it's not right if you want, but that is just the world that we lived in at that point. And, you know, uh, Francois Clemens was realistic. And yeah, I know you, there's, there's some like video footage of him with his wife. And it reminded me that uh, George Takei once married a woman too. And you know what? Even Elton John got married at some point. So I guess that, you know what? I guess that's what happened. That's, that's what happened in the seventies. It was just easier for gay men to get married. But uh, it was interesting. One of the things that Francois said is that he couldn't pray the gay away, which uh, there are, of course, people who feel like, you know, you take kids and they can go to these, I, I don't want to call them camps because that has the wrong connotation, but they'll go to these, you know, they'll go to like retreats where you can try to not be gay. And Adults as well. Right, that's true. You're, you're absolutely right. that it, They also do it for adults. And I think, to me, that meant that he tried that. You know, because he believed in the mission so much. I'm, I'm maybe inferring to that, but that's just the impression that I got. I, I don't know if maybe I'm alone in that, but I, I do think that we all agree that he realized that it was much more important for there to be a, a, a black character on the show than for him to be able to be comfortable being a homosexual man in public. Um, but since we're speaking about Officer Clemens, let's talk about uh, one of my favorite sequences, which is he and Mr. Rogers going around sort of inner city New York and just, uh, you know, walking around the kids who are like, hey, look, it's Mr. Rogers. And uh, it, it's very cool because the music is cool, but it's just it's just a nice reminder that somebody that's a, as, you know, square and not hip as Mr. Rogers could happen to look cool like that. I don't know. What did you guys think about that? It was weird seeing a, a ping pong table in the middle of the street. Yeah. <laughs> You know, it's it's the summer. You're not going to have your ping pong table uh, inside. And, uh, you know, it's sort of attached to that is, is there was a, a young man inside the studio who was breakdancing. And one of the things that I like about Mr. Rogers and all these clips is that he's not afraid to look silly or even look stupid. And there are definitely times, you know, they only show a little bit of him trying to use the pogo stick, but it, that was something that he oh. couldn't really use. There's a great outtake that I uh, was sorry wasn't in the film. What was it? He's trying to put together 
it, it's a tent. Like that. Yeah, if you yeah. if you watch the full, there's a clip of him talking to David Letterman in the movie. If you watch the full interview with Letterman, they show sort of a time lapse version of it. But uh, yeah, it took him it took him forever, and he's, but he finally just throws it to the side and walks yeah. off camera. But he does say that he's like, "But we did get it together, like on the show." But it's just funny because he sees that clip, and he's not embarrassed. He's like, "Well, you know, sometimes." Things don't go the way we planned in the neighborhood. Uh, it was funny because it it was like it was like a very like sweet interaction with David Letterman, who usually was a little too cool for somebody like Fred Rogers. But uh, I I don't know. It's a it's a nice clip, and you know, in it he mentions that he says to Paul Schaefer, "I guess we ran out of time for our song," and. I just think that would have been crazy if he like jammed with Paul Schaefer because obviously he was so musically inclined, you know. And uh, I don't know, I would have liked to have seen that. But uh, Jason, what do you what do you sort of think about all all these these sort of hip, out of place, fish out of water moments for Mister Rogers? I, I think it's great that he just uh, you know he tried it. He tried uh, a little break dancing. He wasn't great at it, but he he doesn't go over the top. It's not like when he showed up in the. In the the New York City streets in the late seventies, he put on like a fur coat or something, walked down the street. He, you know, it just. Uh, I think even the first episode we talked about last episode where uh, he was fixing the mailbox with Joe Negri. I mean, I think one time they put a nail up there and he was trying to nail it, and he got the nail crooked and he had to pull it back out and stuff. And those are things that, in a normal show, you would say, okay, let's cut. We can just you know edit it back yeah. uh, and and start over from that point but they just they just kind of kept rolling with it and i think that really just shows you how authentic he is that this is our plan we're just going to you know nail it and if it doesn't work out it doesn't work out you reminded me um because you said fish out of water and there's footage of him swimming he told me when i was with him that he swam every morning of his life basically it was the way he started his day yeah and uh, i in the interview that i read with Morgan Neville, the director, that apparently what everybody said is the the one thing he would ever get mad about is if he was traveling and whoever was in charge of finding him, because he had to swim every morning. So if he was traveling, he was out of Pittsburgh. And when they couldn't find a pool for him to swim in, he that's when he would actually get mad because he like needed to swim every day. And uh, I would love to see the outtakes of him just like trashing a hotel room because they don't have a pool. What, what, what do you mean the pool is closed? Yeah, exactly. Uh, I don't care if there's a jacuzzi. I need a pool. I, I thought it was it was interesting. Look, I, I love the Eddie Murphy, Mr. Robinson's neighborhood. I always thought it was really funny. And it seemed that that one didn't bother him entirely. He seemed, he was actually, it's almost a throwaway line. They show a clip of that and it's on, and then he's sitting with David Letterman, the same interview that we're talking about. And he has a Polaroid of him with Eddie Murphy and how Eddie Murphy was excited to meet him. And just deadpan, he says, that's me on the left. You know, and, and it's just like Letterman doesn't say anything about it, but I was just like, that's so funny that he's like, he's going to tell us which one isn't Eddie Murphy. Uh, but then there's a there's a clip of a of a Johnny Carson one that was just didn't seem funny at all. And uh, he's just sort of has that. Well, some of them aren't very funny. It seems like there's nothing funnier, though, than Martin Short dresses Mr. Rogers getting into boxing. Right fighting the, John the Candy. Fi- yeah, fighting incredible. John Candy as Julia Child. I know that is pretty funny. I, I don't know that maybe that one he liked, but uh, I, I do wonder. But it's just it, it's just interesting that, uh, you know, he. it seems like, you know, maybe he didn't have the the most amazing, you know, crazy sense of humor, but he does have a sense of humor. And to an extent, he's able to kind of laugh at himself. Uh, and I thought it was interesting how the film showed that. As uh, before, before we run out of time, uh, I wanted to sort of go back to some of the bigger moments in, in the film. Uh, another one that really got to me, this was one of my infamous four moments where I cried, was sort of dealing with the explosion of the Challenger. Now, I was, I think I was a week away from being 10 years old when that happened. So I was too old to have had Mr. Rogers help me deal with it, but that probably could have been a that would have been a useful tool, I think. You know, him talking about it because I was aware of the concept of death. I was, like I said, it was almost ten, but I don't know that I was able to process it. And I just remember watching, the, seeing the footage on television, and I think it must have, you know, just in hindsight, playing armchair psychiatrist for myself, just thinking that 
I just wasn't like, wait, did that that really happen? How did how does that happen? You know, how do you put these people on the space shuttle and have it blow up? It was the only time in all my years in school where they ever made any kind of announcement of anything going on in the news. Like they actually just told us during class. And then I think it's like basically kind of a screw you to the teachers that it's like, well, now you got to talk about death with these kids. But uh, when I was in fourth grade, I remember they, they told us about it. it we was watched a- it live because it was the first teacher in space. Sure. So we all got called into the uh, auditorium and they had a big TV and we were all watching it live as it happened. So- I was wondering if they, they showed footage of kids in a school watching it in, in an auditorium. I was wondering if that was... Krista McAuliffe's yeah, I, school. Yeah, I remember the kids. You know, you've seen that a few times over the years. Though That was her school. And what I remembered as a kid, it's funny, it goes full circle to Daniel Tiger asking Lady Aberlin to let the air out of the balloon. I remember that one of the kids let go of a balloon when they saw it happen because they were holding balloons and they were excited. And just watching the balloon kind of float up in the top of the TV frame, it just, that's what heightened for me that, like, this is really sad. These people couldn't believe that their teacher, who they were all so excited for. She's going to be the first teacher in space. I think it's it's important when you have moments like that, and you know, kids do see things like that. And again, like I said, I, I was 10, so I guess if the Thundercats had done a special episode, then maybe uh, maybe <laughs> Snarf could have talked me through it. But There were bad O-rings on the Samoflange. <laughs> definitely on the Samoflange. But I guess part of that, too, is the fact that if you only do 15 episodes a year, it just might not be doing content anywhere near that you know what i mean so they don't really talk about it in the movie i think they touched on it in the pbs documentary but there's this this week of shows that they're called the conflict shows that they took out of the the reruns and you know if if you're in, in intuitive and engineering enough you can actually you can find them and i think that the idea that you see the kids in the neighborhood of make-believe like putting on gas masks and stuff because King Friday thinks a war is coming. I think it was probably a little too much. But what I will say, even if that is a swing and a miss, you have to really appreciate the idea that they took that really big swing of like, we're going to do a week on war. Let's go ahead and call it conflict because war is kind of a scary word. I don't know. What, what do you think about some of the some of the the bigger risks that they took on the show, Jason? Yeah, you know, it, it's funny watching that documentary because I, I guess it's just through the tinge of being a kid. I just I always thought of it as being more on on a kid level. Like I just remember him feeding his fish and talking about how the puppets worked and and things like that. And you go in here and you're like, wow, they really did deal with really grown up things and 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 not all the time just conflict but like i said even lessons me as a parent would like and and it's just you don't get any of that with with modern kid shows it's it's usually about a magic spell or somebody shrinking down too small or something like that and and these are real world things and it's just it's just i don't think you can even show guns in kids shows anymore yeah i I think you're probably right yeah that's a that's definitely a good point and you know but like you said not just war but like i the documentary has a clip of it you know he did a whole week on divorce you know and it's like something that you wouldn't talk about in tv and you know kids probably had a lot of questions about it. and maybe they're maybe they were afraid to ask their parents so i think it's it is really brave in that way some of these things and you know so look if if the if the conflict shows are are hard to watch look the one i watched he goes to joe negri's music shop and looks at a bunch of banks you know like banks that you put coins in like piggy banks but they're different and i'm like there's nothing wrong with this it's it's i guess the week long storyline in the neighborhood of make believe about the war that's coming so i guess that uh there apparently in the little bit that i've read about it there was like an equal like right down the middle reaction of wow this is so great i'm so glad you did these shows versus the other half being like i can't believe that you did a week about war like lady aberlin says well the real betty aberlin says just the idea of letting letting the work speak for itself you know maybe a parent could watch it first and decide if they want their kid to see it but those are those are episodes that uh, aren't on amazon and when the the online service Twitch, they showed every episode except they didn't show those five, and I think there's one or two other that they didn't show. So, the, so they just are are very cognizant of not having those episodes in circulation in any way. Now, in case the bomb should come to your neighborhood, there will be air raid shelters for you to run to. 
But you have to put your gas masks on first. Oh. My daddy says that gas masks are heavy on your head. Oh, well, I guess they are, Anna. Well, what if we can't find the air raid shelter? Hmm, that would be scary, wouldn't it? Yes, it would. My daddy's training all the generals today. That's scary, too. Everything's scary about all this. Yes, it does. Oh, well, class, look who's here. Hello, everybody. Hello. I hope we're not interrupting too much. No, we were just talking about the air raid shelters in case of an attack. And we were saying that it was scary. It certainly is scary. And I, for one, feel that there's entirely too much talk about it. It was a revelation for me because I don't. I started watching after um, it had already turned to color, and I don't remember a lot of the more uh, socially relevant shows. Yeah, it was definitely a revelation to me because uh, I always just remember the softer <laughs> content. Yeah, that's what I remember. And honestly, when you're only doing 15 shows a year, you're running a lot of episodes again and again. And I think that you're probably not running those ones that might be a little bit more uncomfortable to have to talk about with your kids. You're not going to run those ones as often. And, you know, at a certain point, they just stopped running the first series entirely. Uh, I think that's all after all of us were older. I think that was in the 90s, just because they were you know, obviously particularly dated the episodes from the earlier 70s. And so the series from like 1979 to 2001, that was still several hundred episodes. But even those still dealt with some of these things. In terms of overall big picture events, we talked a little bit about 9-11 and how that must have been really hard for him to have to talk about. And what I meant to say earlier was that you have to just imagine for a second when you're Fred Rogers and your entire life's work embodies the belief that for the most part, people are good. You know, it's what Anne Frank wrote in her diary, you know, that uh, for the most part, people are, are good. But then you have a day like that. That's just a reminder of like just the abject evil that humanity is capable of. And I know he got sick around that time. I think he was already sick, but I, I can just, imagine some a day like that happens and you're like all right i i don't i don't know what i'm doing and and i would imagine that that was probably why he felt so lost and that's why i think it's great that we don't really end on that stuff yes we talked about how the ending of the documentary has the westboro baptist church but uh it's it's a very sweet moment in this film and then also in the documentary where he meets the handicap boy, Jeff Erlinger. And oh, it's that, that, that made me cry when I watched the PBS documentary, uh, because I, so I had seen it, but this film won't you be my neighbor had his parents and they weren't in the PBS documentary. And it was, it was just sort of great to hear their perspective as to what that day meant. Uh, and you know, that was one of those things that Mr. Rogers did. And, there were handicapped people on the show, you know? Uh, and I, and I, I hope people who go to see this film um, stay uh, through the credits because there's that clip then. Is this a spoiler alert? No, alert? it's all right. I, I think this okay. is, I, I wanted to bring it up that I'm glad that the last thing we see is what you're about to talk about, Gene. Yeah, cool. well, so he's got Jeff Erling on the show. When, how old could he be? I think he was seven ten, or eight. Yeah, maybe? seven or eight, somewhere in that range, yeah. And he's getting some kind of Lifetime Achievement Award. And I, I don't know whether this was different from that Emmy yeah. uh, Lifetime Achievement he got or the same show. Um, but as a surprise, Jeff Erlinger gets, wheels himself onto the stage. He's probably in his 30s, maybe, yeah. at this point. Complete surprise to Fred Rogers, who becomes like Roberto Benigni. <laughs> <laughs> going through the seats way ahead of his, his moment to be called up and climbs up onto the stage, doesn't even take the staircase because he's, he's in such shock. He's he, just he, so he, excited to see where him. he is. He's yeah. just there with Jeff. I, yeah, the, I, I love I that, that moment. They did a really good job uh, editing that in the, in the movie by having the parents come out and talk, and they said that he was going to be doing this uh, surgery, and you know, at the time when he was on the show, and so you really didn't know like if he lived that much longer after the the show was uh, on and stuff. They and then to show that at the very end to realize, oh wait, he actually did go on for a while. I looked it up just now. It says he 
I guess he died in 2007, but yeah. he died uh-huh. after Mr. Rogers. The way they kind of edited that, they kind of left it in limbo. Like, did he survive that surgery he was about to have after the show? And you, you really didn't know until the very uh-huh. end uh, when the credits are rolling. Yeah, You're I, talking about these the moments that make you cry. I mean, I, throughout the film, there were several moments that, you know, I was, you know, the lips were quivering and, and all of that. And then that was just the last straw. You know, it's just, it all came out. Yeah. Yeah. Including another moment I'd like to talk about, but it was just at the end. And this was, this was another moment for, for my son, which was, I guess, an education for him was that he's, he's seen me tear up before and all that, but he just saw me like weeping like a baby um, sitting next to him and I'm reassuring him it's okay. And we had a conversation about it, but there was no reason to keep it back anymore. It just, <laughs> that was the big waterfall for me. But there was the other part, uh, if you don't mind me jump, like, no, jumping to another moment. Absolutely. I saw him do this at, when he was getting a Lifetime Achievement in the 1997 Emmy Awards. Where, and they said that he did this at the end of a lot of his speeches, where he, he just asked everybody for one minute to think of the people that meant the most to them in their lives and that helped them gave them support and helped them make changes and, and people, and he, he said, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll even time you. And he would just take the minute and instead of absorbing all of the, you know, the praise for himself when getting an award, he would always turn it around and say, I owe this to other people. And that was a big waterfall falling moment for me too. It just was, it was just the, the perfect thing to do when you're Mr. Rogers getting an award, you turn it around and give the love back to people. And when they did it on the Emmys, you could see that a couple people at first didn't know how to take him, whether to take him seriously or to giggle, you could hear a few giggles in the audience, but then they would cut to a few people who were just said, wow, this is, this is not what we expected and they're getting a little teared up and they're, they're going along with it and they're taking advantage of that moment that he offered them. Yeah, and he did that moment in the commencement speech that I saw at my school. I, I okay. thought I remembered that, but re- I had to read the transcripts to make sure that I didn't just, you know, project that I, I sat through that. And so that probably was a thing that he did. And, you know, obviously if you're graduating, that's sort of a great time to do it. But yeah, the way it was done in the movie... You know, some of the people say who the person was and some of them just kind of nod like his kids just nod like, well, you know, I think you probably can guess who I'm saying. Since we're uh, going through the the hanky moments, one that got me that just it kind of disarmed me and I had forgotten about it when I saw it the second time. I couldn't remember what it was that had made me cry as well. Uh, just after one of his commencement speeches, woman comes up to him and yeah. says that she had a disability as a child, couldn't go to preschool. So he was a preschool and you could see that he was just like, he was really disarmed by it because he was like, obviously he felt like, oh my God, I can't believe that I was able to do that for this woman. And now look at her, the fact that, you know, whatever her disability was, she seemed like she was up and around fine now. So it was one of those more like what she said and she was emotional saying it and just his reaction of like, Oh, and look at you now, you know, it just, uh, I don't know, throughout the movie, there are plenty of those moments. And uh, even with all this fame that he didn't get coarse or, uh, you know, cold to the experience of people telling him how much he meant to them. Yeah, Every moment, tell, generally yeah. felt surprised when people, you know, said about how much that he meant. You could tell you just I don't know if he ever really considered himself to be a famous person in a way. Like it, it kind of surprised him whenever people come up and say, you mean so much to me. Yeah. He's very quick to uh, basically deflect, you know, somebody, there was an interview. He was like, well, what do you think about the power that you have now? And he's like, I just, I just don't see it that way. You know, that, that sort of thing. So I, I don't, I thought it was very interesting. And one of the sort of overreaching quotes fairly early in the episode is from one of the producers of the show where she talked about a director who told them that if you take everything that makes good television and do the opposite, then you get this show because it's quiet. (laughs) It's slow paced. It's cheap sets. You know, those are, those are lovable puppets, but they are very cheap puppets. You know, I think that they got improved a little bit, but that's the thing that surprises me and what Jason and I were talking about before we were even going to do an episode of the Blackcast about this. Just the idea that my son can watch it 
And he's okay with the silence of Mr. Rogers playing in a sandbox. And he's made a tunnel out of an oatmeal canister. And just he he's just like, oh man, he has a he has a sandbox in his backyard. Check this out. This is this is pretty sweet, you know? So it's interesting. But Jason, you've said that your kids are good for one or two episodes maybe and then they need something else or or what's the yeah we had it on in the car going out taking a road trip and so i bought the uh after that pbs documentary they released a box set that's got uh, six or seven discs i think they got about five or six episodes a piece on them and uh you could kind of tell when they're ready for something new they kind of start shouting out other shows and so uh um they were good for two and then we went we went to the third one and then after the third one i will say what they were asking for was was Daniel Tiger's neighborhood. Uh, so they weren't wanting something totally different, but yeah. you know, they just kind of get to the point where you could tell their attentions a little bit, to be honest, a show at that pace for an hour's worth of viewing, uh, at their age is it's, it's amazing. And, and they, they do love the show. And like I said, even when they, even when they watch Daniel Tiger now, they know Mr. Rogers is part of that neighborhood. they, they don't see him there. They don't obviously know the concept that he's dead, but you know that it basically he owns the trolley, <laughs> and, and so that's why he's in that world to them. One of the final points I wanted to make is there's a reminiscence in the film from Joanne Rogers, Fred's wife, uh, about how growing up there was this idea that you know he didn't want to be a bad boy and you could never let on that you were angry. And I think that that really is one of the most important things about this show. And of all the things that I do feel like Daniel Tiger has helped with, you know, it's a continuation of this in in some ways, is that it's okay. You just have to, you have to acknowledge these feelings and help you express yourself and, you know, not keep it all inside, which I think even, you know, I'm not saying specifically from my parents, but when I was a kid, yeah, you weren't supposed to get angry. And I think it's much more healthy to have this, this nice man on television whom you trust telling you like, you know, it's okay to do it. You know, you just have to figure out how to get past it. What do you think, Gene, about sort of dealing with some of these basic, you know, just emotions like getting angry, you know, having, having that on television. It's, it's not something that anybody's willing to really talk us through anymore. So it's great that we're, I guess we have older episodes of Mr. Rogers to help that way, huh? Yeah. I think he, he's not telling us to bury our emotions. He's trying to, um, let us know that you can feel them and there are ways to manage them as well. The way he shows how he'll put his emotions into his piano playing, for example, um, that uh, these feelings are all very legitimate, but there's a way to manage them so that they, what would be the reason why? Just so that you can get through your own life a little easier so that you don't, you know, there's a, there's a fear to indulging your emotions to the point where it's self-destructive and, I think he he gave that forum to kids who um, he didn't want. I don't think he wanted kids to have the same experience he did growing up, and so he that may have been the, the main purpose for featuring it so much on the show. Jason, what do you think? I don't know if it's helped your three-year-olds yet, but do you think it'll be helpful for them to know that it's okay to get angry, just figure out what to do with it? Uh, my kids don't have any problem getting angry. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, definitely uh, learning how to deal with it appropriately, but it, it's hard. As a parent, you just kind of want to shut down any kind of display of anger or any kind of bad behavior instead of directing it it, it's that impatient nature of having the three kids. And I'm sure even with one kid, it's just you, you don't have time for this. And it's, it's just easier to say, stop crying or be a big boy or whatever. And it's just it, it's so easy to do that. But that's not really constructive. It's OK. Why are you feeling this way? What the, you know, why are you choosing to do this? You know, because a lot of times their anger is basically frustration of their own making because they yeah. want basically their cake and eat it too. And so you have to <laughs> sit down and say, here's here's your choices. And, and, and it takes a lot of time. But it, it and I think Fred can just he's just very good at that. And, and I see that. And sometimes I get angry because I'm not as good as as he is. You know, I just, yeah. One of my huge challenges being a parent and maybe a lot of people is that you're already dealing with a huge spectrum of emotions and experiences yourself and as and when somebody else brings their own stuff to you you're already exhausted and you're thinking 
oh, you too, you know, and you don't, and you immediately don't have the same patience for it. So you have to step back and say, oh, that those emotions are just as legitimate and important as the ones that I'm dredging up. So that's a huge challenge for any parent. Well, it's just not um, blow it off as an inconvenience if your child's coming to you upset about something because you've already been dealing with your own inconvenient emotions. Yeah, I find myself saying things like, we don't cry about videos. You know, we don't cry because we don't get to watch more videos. But I mean, to him, that's just like, no, you don't understand. I have watched two videos and I would now like to watch some more. And I can't handle the fact that there's all this water pouring out of my face and I'm screaming because you're not letting me. And I don't know what to do with that. <laughs> but I want it is the biggest, uh, you know, but yeah. I want it. And that, yeah. that trumps anything else. So yeah, trying exactly. to rationalize with that is hard. Well, one great moment in the movie that'll be our, our final point of conversation is actually a YouTube video that I saw years ago that went around, which was him in the hearing on PBS and this senator that was dead set on like, you know, PBS, it's a waste of time. It's a waste of money. I love that they're talking about $20 million in funding, by the way, like that, uh, that was the real problem. Even in, even in 1969 or whatever year that was, it was, it was Nixon. So it's at least 1969. So even in those dollars, you're like, come on, 20 million, like you, you, you can find it. And just the way that, you know, he disarms everyone and it's like, he just says the lyrics to the song about getting mad. That's why I wanted to end on this. Could I tell you the words of one of the songs which I feel is very important? Yes. This has to do with that good feeling of control which I feel that the children need to know is there. And it starts out, what do you do with the mad that you feel? And that first line came straight from a child. I work with children do, doing puppets in, in very personal communication with small groups. What do you do with the mad that you feel? When you feel so mad you could bite. When the whole wide world seems oh so wrong and nothing you do seems very right. What do you do? Do you punch a bag? Do you pound some clay or some dough? Do you round up friends for a game of tag or see how fast you go? It's great to be able to stop when you've planned a thing that's wrong and be able to do something else instead and think this song. I can stop when I want to, can stop when I wish, can stop, stop, stop anytime. And what a good feeling to feel like this and know that the feeling is really mine know that there's something deep inside that helps us become what we can for a girl can be someday a lady and a boy can be someday a man i think it's wonderful i think it's wonderful <sighs> looks like you just earned the 20 million dollars <laughs> It's just a nice reminder that uh, hey, you know what? Look, look what he did for look what he did for everybody on PBS. Look what he did for McNeil and Lehrer and Big Bird and you know Masterpiece Mystery and everything. Anyway, uh, gentlemen, it uh, has been a lot of fun talking with you for these last two episodes and uh there uh, had been some little bits of excitement that we were going to talk about the mr rogers film won't you be my neighbor by director morgan neville that is now showing uh, pretty much nationwide as far as i can tell uh because i did tease that in our ant-man and the wasp episode i let people know that uh, that would be our our next episode so uh there people are excited and i think even if you haven't seen the movie i think it's a conversation that uh, everybody can you know definitely relate to because for the most part I, i'll let you know when i meet somebody that is from the united states who has not had mr rogers in their life the one person that i do know is uh, in her early 20s and she grew up in france but uh, she had seen the movie and she was on the popcorn talk show about won't you be my neighbor with me and so she was like experiencing mr rogers for the first time in the film which was sort of a unique perspective which i guess is what uh, your son ben had right gene yeah you just reminded me honestly i was i actually had lunch yesterday with somebody who absolutely hates him or hated him was it somebody that worked with him 
No, it was just, he said, as a child, I would see the show and I immediately thought, why is he telling me to use my imagination? Why is he doing all this fantasy stuff? He's an adult. This is fantasy stuff for kids to do. Show me some adult stuff. And he's was it Brian like, Kilmeade? <laughs> right, right, could have been. But I, I said, get out of, leave the table. You're ruining my afternoon. Because oh, he was funny. just so anti-Mr. Rogers. Well, so. uh, Gene, how, how can people keep in touch with you? Or do you want people to keep in touch with you? Do you want to put the Twitter out there? Well, I'll give you my website instead. Sure. If you, if you were, uh, I don't know if we mentioned that I write and illustrate children's books. For oh, I of course, of Mr. Rogers. I of course always figure everybody knows who you are. But yeah, I, that would have been a, a relevant uh, connection at some point in the last two hours. Yeah, but so if you want to see any of my books, you can just go to GeneBeretta.com, which has got two R's and two T's. And uh, there are uh, some of those books where you might see a cameo of yours truly hidden in there That's somewhere. Right. Yeah. That's and, right. And Mr. Dennis Miller. And uh, Jason, I know that uh, I think you've tripled your tweeting since the last time you were on the Blackcast a little bit over a year ago. Yeah, maybe uh, the week after I tweeted uh, four or five times, yeah. pro- probably tripled it. And then I don't, I don't think I've tweeted again since then, no, but I, but, uh, I, I think you've given li- a good reason to get back on there. I people. think you've liked something, and you're Jason P. Blair, right? Jason P. Blair. Well, yes. you know, uh, Twitter just did like a big house cleaning uh, in terms of all of the spam bots and the. I dead was accounts. really worried about at Coltrane Lee. Well, you should be because he's down to 154 followers, okay. and he had 16,000 at one point. And our friend Jeff Duray is, is also only has a few hundred. So the fact that you only have 18 followers and 60 tweets, I think is all right. You know, I think. But they're all legit. I can verify all those people exist, except for possibly at Jeff Duray. But other than that. Yeah, we know he's not a real person. Well, <laughs> as for me, you can find me at Christian DMZ. That's on Twitter and Instagram. And you can like The Black Cast on Facebook, B-L-A-D-T-C-A-S-T. We have blackcast.com, B-L-A-D-T-C-A-S-T.com. I always like to spell. It's always good. You know, Gene, you have down the two R's and the two T's. I have D-T in black. What's the what's the, your nationality, by the way? Danish. It's not like Smith, but it's a much more common name in, in Denmark. As I've mentioned, there was a Danish boxer named Christian Blatt, spelled exactly like mine. He was undefeated through his first 19 fights, and then his career just took an immediate nosedive. Uh, I like to think that I'm just as good of a fighter as he is. Anyway. Uh, At so- least you don't have a New York Times reporter who makes up stories. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. Geez. Your name. I forgot about that. Your name is the worst. <laughs> yeah. But Dennis always says that joke. He's always just like, I came across Jason Blair sleeping on a park bench, but he was uh, covered with the Tribune or uh, something like that. But, oh. uh, well, gentlemen, this was fun. It wasn't yeah. just fun. It was a good feeling. It's such a good feeling to know you're alive. It's such a happy feeling. You're growing inside. And when you wake up ready to say, I think I'll make a snappy new day. It's such a good feeling, a very good feeling. The feeling you know that I'll be back when the day is new. And I'll have more ideas for you. And you'll have things you'll want to talk about. I will, too. You always make each day such a special day. You know how. By just your being you. Only one person in the whole world like you. That's you yourself. I'll be back next time. Bye-bye.